Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A. Zocalo, which means public square in Spanish, is a nonpartisan, multi-ethnic forum providing an opportunity for intellectual fellowship in Southern California. Tonight on Zocalo, Blues for Black America, a talk by columnist, novelist, essayist, and critic Stanley Crouch. Los Angeles-born Stanley Crouch has been a musician, actor, playwright, and poet, but is known chiefly for his critical essays and reviews. A staff writer at the Village Voice for nearly a decade, his work has appeared in many publications, including the New York Times, Downbeat, and the Partisan Review. His books include Notes of a Hanging Judge, The Artificial White Man, and most recently, Considering Genius, Jazz Writings. Crouch is the recipient of numerous awards, including a MacArthur Foundation grant. Recorded before a live audience at the California Endowment, as part of Zocalo's Public Square Lecture Series, here is Stanley Crouch. Well, good evening. What I'm going to talk about this evening initially is the fact that I think there is a cultural crisis facing black America. And much of the cultural crisis, it seems to me, comes from a perverted definition of authenticity on the one hand, and the, and the reiteration of minstrelsy in a popular form that's supposedly a musical form that some people say is good because it has produced a large number of black millionaires. But I don't know if, if the impact that has been had by this on younger black people is worth a handful of black people becoming wealthy. Because if, if that is the way by which we should judge everything, then all the Africans who sold other Africans into slavery should be celebrated by becoming wealthy for selling slaves. And so I don't really see that big a difference between what people who make a living First, popularizing, well, you, well, the first thing is you can't popularize the word nigger. That's impossible. You can't popularize it. That would, because if you, would, you were to popularize it, that would be as though it hadn't been used by a lot of people before. So I don't think it's any more popular than it's ever been. I think that the only, the only real difference is that people will tell you what these people do is that they take all of the rhetorical defenses that are made for, for art and they put it on something that's not created for artistic reasons. That is, if someone says, well, it's a freedom of speech issue, that's not any way anybody is saying that. Or it's, a, it's an artistic choice. People who don't know what art is don't make art. It's, uh, it's a description of the world that they actually come out of. But the first thing is this. The world out of which they come does not only include those people who dominate rap videos, 
the idea that a person is authentic because he's a he's embraced what Tupac Shakur called the thug life is that's only one version of authenticity because as a friend of mine and I were talking once, we were talking about, we were talking to uh, his grandson, and we were talking about the way these clowns look. So his grandson said, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. You all, that's all what you all want. They're just, they're just being up to date. So, he, so, so, so we zeroed in on him like this. We said, okay, your daughter gets hit by a car. You go into emergency, and the doctors in the emergency section of the hospital look like these guys in a video. <laughs> what would you do then? He said, I would take my daughter, and I would leave the emergency, and I would go to another hospital. He said, OK, you have an impacted tooth. You go to a dentist. The dentist comes in. And he's got his pants falling down. He's got his, he's got his cornrows. He's got gold teeth. And, he's, and his hands are dirty. And he says, open your mouth. What would you do then? I would get up, and I would leave. But what if he said, you're not leaving because you believe the white man's lies about hygiene, are you? Because I'm going to give you an authentic version of black dentistry. I don't wash my hands. I don't believe anything the white folks tell you. Just open your mouth and I'll fix you up. He said, I'd still go. I said, OK, so you get on a plane. You're going to fly to New York. You got a first class seat. You go in the first class, you're sitting down, you're relaxing. You don't expect any terrorists, anything to come on the plane. You, this is perfect time for me. The pilots come on. And they look like these guys in video. They're talking, and you say, well, they can't really be the pilots. Then they turn around, they got gold teeth <laughs> on top and bottom. What would you do? He said, I would get up off the plane. I wouldn't fly with them flying. And so in other words, so we said, well, in other words, this authenticity you're talking about it's only valid to you as a form of entertainment. Anything in the real world that resembles that, you're going to get as far away from it as you possibly can. And he said, yeah. Now, this to me is the problem. I don't accept the idea that the making of money validates to anything that is sold. Because when I grew up, there were always people at the pool hall. There were always pimps. There were always drug dealers. There were always thieves who said, well, I tell you, he said, look here, young brother. I'm going to tell you what it is. If people are buying, if they are paying cash money for boxes of manure, then you get a wheelbarrow of manure, and you go out there and you sell it. Because it's good if it makes you some money. Now, that philosophy, to me, is not something that we're supposed to embrace, nor are we supposed to accept from young people, or any people, really. Because on that basis, if crack makes you rich, it's good. 
If you sell bad pharmaceutical drugs and you make a lot of money, fine. If you sell rotten food, if you sell spoiled food, fine. These are not reasons why you, why you back somebody up. And it seems to me that we're facing a certain problem, which is a certain set of values are being projected onto people who do not need those particular values. Now, this is what I mean. There are two parts to it. One is anything that promotes the idea that women are a few very limited things. Bitches, hoes, freaks, and hoochies is not good. You're listening to novelist, essayist, and critic Stanley Crouch. This is Zocalo. Zocalo Radio is available as a free podcast. You can grab the podcast anytime at our website, ZocaloLA.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot O-R-G. We now return to Stanley Crouch with Blues for Black America. People say, well, we're learning from them what it's like in the street. Well, now, they've been saying that for about 20 years, haven't they? They've been calling people niggas for 20 years. They've been calling women bitches for 20 years. They've been calling them hoes for 20 years. They've been calling them hoochies for 20 years. Now, what have we to learn from them now? What are we presently learning? I mean, when, when somebody says, well, like a white guy was telling me, he told me, I asked him, I said, well, what, what, what is it you actually like about 50 Cent? He said, well, you know, I, I feel that I, I when I put on his, his recordings, I, I feel as though I'm actually getting an experience. I said, well, what experience? He said, he said, well, you know, I, 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 people like that, I didn't grow up around them, and I, I don't really know their world. And uh, I said, well, 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 but what are you learning from him? Where is he taking you? I mean, what it, see, this, see, see, this is all, to, to be blunt, I would like to use language that parallels a rapper's, but I'm not going to go to it. But I will say this. That's just bunk, period. Because I, when, when I was in Canada once, I was, I was on a TV show, and so this English guy says, well, the value of rap is that it's, it's word-driven. I said, well, I said, but I don't think that's why people like you like it, though. <laughs> and then he said, what do you mean? I said, well, as far as I know, there's never been a small audience for any idiom that projects the Negro as inferior to the white man. He said, well, what do you mean? I said, you're not going to tell me that when you read these lyrics, so-called, that you think that the person who wrote them is equal to you? He said, well, uh, see, he, didn't, he didn't want to say yes. No, he wasn't going to go there, as they say. But I think that's the point. In other words, do you think anybody on, okay, like these guys are all rich, right? So, so do you think that a guy on Wall Street actually reads 50 Cent's lyrics and think, this guy could be a partner in the firm. <laughs> I think he's onto something. 
This is a very intelligent man. No. No, these guys, not, that, that's not what's going on. So, for instance, this is what I find fascinating. If you have Barack Obama here, right, and there are, there are supposed questions about his authenticity, then you have 50 Cent over here, and there are supposed to be no questions about his authenticity. <laughs> but at one point, I was on, on a show, and a guy said, well, don't you think that 50 Cent is authentic? I said, authentic what? He said, well, you know, he, he lived a hard life. I said, okay. He said, you know he was shot nine times. I said, well, I said, I know something about guns and, and bullet wounds. I said, I'll bet you this. He did not take nine shots to the torso. That's right. Because nine shots out of an automatic weapon in the torso, he wouldn't be around. He would be someplace shaking hands with Tupac Shakur, and they would, they would be talking about the way it used to be down there. Well, no, or up there. It, depends. <laughs> it all depends. It all depends. Now, the thing is that the point I'm making is one of the things that we know happened before and after slavery was there was an enormous resistance to the education of black people. And when I was growing up, I grew up in what they call a working class community. My mother was in domestic. My father was in prison most of the time. He was a dedicated criminal, but he wasn't a virtuoso criminal <laughs> because virtuoso criminals don't spend a lot of time in the penitentiary, which he did. But everybody, him, all the hustlers, winos, everybody would always be, be trying to, to get all of the kids to study. So you'd be sitting on, you'd be sitting with your books on the bus stop and some wino told you, say, look here, boy, I'm gonna tell you something. Read them books, study. Otherwise, you might end up out here like me. You don't wanna be like me. And then, uh, then after him, some, you know, some church ladies who used to pass out these pink leaflets that would be advertising uh, some sale or some, some church event. And they would come and they'd say, yes, God is truly wonderful. Study those books, boy. Study those books. You go to the barbershop where nothing but BS was flying most of the time. <laughs> but they would say, now if you got inside, they might say, all right, boy, if you get an A, we'll give you a dollar for an A. Get a B, we'll give you 75 cents for a B. We don't pay for C's. Okay, so you get that. All right, so you had that. And you also had these teachers, black teachers, white teachers, Chicano teachers, Asian teachers, and they kept their foot in the crack of your booty for one reason, because they knew that you had so many obstacles going against you that the most they wanted you to do was to be prepared to fight, to fight the resistance. That the best antidote to a racist situation was to, as they said, be totally prepared because you never know, you might be there at the time when the door opens and you don't wanna be unprepared. Okay, so now this is, this is something that had been in the black community from the end of slavery all the way through the 60s 
and through the 70s, and maybe it began to shake or it began to falter in the 80s, perhaps. But again, right now, the only people who will defend, for instance, the what I call the anarchic oppression of street gangs are the people who don't live in the areas where they run. The only people who will give you a sociological explanation for a crip or a blood does not live in a neighborhood that is controlled by them. Because the first thing they know is this, is they're always a minority of the community. Now, most young black guys are interested in the same thing that most young guys are interested in, young women. Now, it just so happens that because of rap, the straight guy, if you will, he'll carry himself like a knucklehead because he's trying to get closer to the girl. He's not really interested in shooting anybody, getting shot at, getting in a gang fight, or any of that. He wants the girl. Now, one woman was telling me that her son was very disturbed because he had done very well in college and that such a fetish had been made of, of, of the thug that he didn't have the kind of access to the girls that he was interested in because he didn't fulfill their fantasy as a knucklehead. Now, I remember a couple of weeks ago, about a month ago, maybe two, I was coming out of a club in New York and these young black guys, about 20 of them, and they were coming up I think it was 60th Street. They were making all kind of dumb noise, and they were looking dumb and acting dumb. And so they went. They went to pass. I looked down. I was like, but but of course, I didn't feel threatened for a number of reasons. But one of them said, "Oh, you're Stanley Crouch." I said, "Yeah, yeah, 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 yeah." He said, "Uh, you know my father." I said, "Yeah." He said he wanted Spain to be awesome. I said, "Really?" And then I knew it his father. And then we start talking. I said, "But I know your father." I've known your father for 40 years. Why do you look like this? He said, oh, he said, wait a minute. He said, we're not really like this. <laughs> he said, we're trying to catch, right? <laughs> he said, it ain't got nothing to do with gangs or nothing. He said, we're looking for the girls. He said, and they like you, they like your pants falling off. They like these caps. They like these braids. He said, I'm not, he said, I'm not gonna go the full distance and get any gold teeth, but they like this. He said, now if they changed, if next month they decided they weren't going out with anybody, unless he wore some gray slacks, some ox blood loafers, blue dress shirt, and a blue and blue and red diagonal tie and a and a blue blazer, that's what we would be wearing. He said, because they determined what we do. Now, here's what I mean. See, that's all dangerous because number one, the general public doesn't know what's going on at all. Now, I saw something on, on the train once that was really fascinating to me. It was, a bunch of, it was about three o'clock. A bunch of kids came on the train. They were all acting wild and crazy and acting like they were thugs. And, and then four, real ones, 
came on the train. <laughs> and you know, like you know, you know, like when they're moving for dreadlocks and they have those rubber bands in their hair, and they all look like a bunch of little explosive charges sitting on their head. <laughs> and he was standing there, and he was spitting on the door. And the other three, and they were looking for somebody that, they were looking to hurt somebody. And it, it was very interesting thing. I put this in a novel, and I had this character say, because as soon as they came on, all these people started going, uh, what did Mrs. Johnson say our assignment was for tomorrow? <laughs> and they changed like that. And it was interesting because I thought to myself, now, if all of white America could have been on the train that day, they would have peeped something that they wouldn't know otherwise, which is that there's a handful of these guys who are real, and there's a whole bunch of fakes. But the thing is, is that faking in that way means that people have bought an idea of their authenticity again that I think is very, very dangerous. Because it also leads, of course, to extremely high dropout rates among black males. It's led to a decreasing amount of black males who go to college. And so you talk to these young black women from coast to coast, and they're going like, where are the guys? Where are the guys? And then somebody will say something like, well, sister, if you really understood what was going on, you would be satisfied with a garbage man. And she might say, yes, I, I might, but I might not, too. You're listening to columnist and critic Stanley Crouch. This is Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A. Ever wonder who really runs L.A.? Zocalo Public Square Lecture Series may have an answer at an event moderated by Mariel Garza of the Los Angeles Daily News with political consultant Kerman Maddox, L.A. Weekly reporter Dave Zanheiser, political scientist Jaime Regalado, and Los Angeles Magazine writer Jesse Katz. This free event on April 10th at 7 p.m. will take place at the National Center for the Preservation of Democracy. Reservations are required. To reserve your seats and download podcasts, go to ZocaloLA.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot org. In a moment, we return to Stanley Crouch with Blues for Black America. Stay tuned to Zocalo. I'm Pat Morrison. It's been a decade since voters amended the state constitution to ban public universities from using race or ethnicity in admissions. What's happened since Prop 209 became the law of the academic land? How have minorities fared in the universities? Prop 209 was the brainchild of UC Regent Ward Connerly, who's coming to UCLA for a debate on the virtues and failings of affirmative action beginning at 1 p.m. on Tuesday, March 20th. Please join us. You can RSVP at kpcc.org. Welcome back to Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A. We return now to Stanley Crouch speaking at the California Endowment on Blues for Black America. One of the biggest problems today is that people actually think that they're doing somebody a favor by spoiling them or by not asking of them that they do their best. The thing I always say is that we don't really have to do anything new 
All we have to do is do what worked, what previously worked, and it'll happen. Well, I, w I would have said that when I was coming up to the, a guy like 50 Cent, he would have had a lot of trouble getting a woman to answer one question that he asked her. Two, she'd be gone. But then, of course, there wasn't this enormous amount of money. But I don't think that would have made a difference at the time. There's a guy named Waltney who talked about what he called core black values, which to me aren't really black. They're just civilized values. And that is that you, you just, there were just certain things you did. And the other thing is that immigrant populations that come into the United States are totally mystified by the black population. They don't get it. I was talking to a, a fellow teacher that I had out at the Claremont Colleges, and she said like, she would have meetings with the Asian students, for instance, whether from, from India or from China or from Japan or from Korea, and they couldn't get, they didn't get it. They didn't understand, they didn't understand the black students. They didn't understand what they were trying to do. Thing that they would say was like, why don't they just get in groups and study? There's no reason any of them should drop out, to, to, should not make it. And they should all make it. Because it's here, it's here for them to make it. The worst thing you can do for anybody is celebrate the weakest part of them. It doesn't take any ability to say, oh, that's, oh I, I ain't gonna read that. They ain't got nothing to do with me. Uh, I don't know nobody named Shakespeare. Well, you don't know anybody named Bread either, but you eat bread. You know, you don't, <laughs> you don't, you don't know anybody named Air, but you breathe it. You know, so it doesn't have anything to do with that. Those are just dumb things like oh, somebody will say, well, we have to change education and make it more relevant to the kids to be, to be like the world they come from. That's not why anybody reads a book. They read a book because it's interesting. Most black kids, like most American kids, are obsessed with, with, to me, a truly overrated idiom or genre, which is science fiction. There's no black kid that we know in America who knows anyone who has a spaceship, who's been to Mars, or to Pluto, or out of this galaxy. They don't know anybody like that. What interests them is that the characters set in that world remind them in some way of people that they understand. There's something human about the people that they identify with. And that's what students have to be taught. I mean, that's why we get all these stupid movies that are supposed to be black movies where, like, what is, uh, I would imagine that there's probably some acting school that teaches black actresses just how to, you know, I used to teach people how to draw a gun to play in the Western. They probably teach them how to put their hand on their hip. And just, you know, just, you know, you have to just practice that. You know, you have to get, you know, practice that in that head. That, you know, it's like, call it like head action. You get that together and that'll be you. Then you're an actress. Or you, or you do this. You know. We've got all of these people, we've got all kinds of black people of every sort in this country, almost none of whom we ever see depicted in movies, almost none. I mean, we've never seen 
You take a guy like Adam Clayton Powell. This was a guy who was in the media all the time. We've never seen him or a character like him really play. We've never seen anybody like, we've, we've seen people attempt to play Martin Luther King, but, but, but the whole world that he represents is not captured. And there are all kinds of people, Duke Ellington, it, 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 it goes on and on and on and on. And I just think that we've just got to get out of, out of what I call the coon cage. And most people don't live their lives in the coon cage. They just get the coon cage imposed on them. And, and people say, well, why, why are you pushing this coon cage at me? Oh, that's authentic. See, I don't buy that. So what I'm saying is we have to embrace, or we have to reiterate. See, we don't have to start anything new. We just have to reiterate what many of us grew up with and know to be true and refuse to allow a number of people who will do anything for money in the entertainment business to define the entire group. The danger of it is this, it seems to me. A friend of mine told me that a guy was, went to Japan to do a business deal, right? And so he gets to Tokyo, he's coming off the plane, and the Japanese guys who were there to greet him they thought from looking at MTV and BET and BH1 that they were going to be hip, right? They're going to be, they're going to speak to him in his own language, right? And so he said, they, he gets off the plane and they're going, hi, nigga. Hi, hi nigga. You know, hi, mother. Hi, mother. Hi, nigga. So then he began to realize that this was an international problem. So on the one hand, we could say, well, maybe it misleads some white people in America and a lot of younger black people, and we need to deal with it. But it's really an international problem now. And the thing is, having grown up in the 60s, I often found myself, as some of you may still find yourself, in a situation in which a white person of truly goodwill is trying to understand something. And he wants you to explain, or she wants you to explain, either way, something that is going on. Now, fortunately, at my age now, I don't, I'm not in a situation where I have to explain what I'm talking about now. But I would really be irritated if I found myself in a number of conversations having to explain why so many people got upset with this comedian, Michael Richards, when he was at the comedy club, when I don't really think we should have been surprised. Because Richard Pryor is the one who began it, but once he opened the barn door, he couldn't even close it. Because he said himself, you know, in one of his comedy movies, well, I think that was a mistake. But that didn't stop anybody else. And so after 20 years of that, to be surprised that a second-rate comedian to me, see, I, I was never a Seinfeld fan, so I can't call it a comedy show. It was just a popular event. And when he gets up, when he gets mad and he starts calling these hecklers in the audience, these names that they get called all the time by comedians, I don't, I don't know how the people had the nerve to get mad at him.
because all of these other comedians have come in here and said, yeah, you niggas, you know what it is. You know what it is, nigga. Somebody sent me a, a thing well, they, they, they saw on YouTube where this guy who's a, a major figure in, in black B movies, Anthony Anderson, he introduces somebody in Atlanta, Georgia, named Crack or Crunk or Cronk or whatever it was. It was a one-syllable name. And he was saying, I want you niggas to put your hands together and bring this nigga on and give him a real moon boom, you know, welcome. Bring his black ass on out here, blah, 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 blah. So I said, like, you know, I was talking to a woman who lives in Harlem. She said, look, if somebody had, had introduced somebody like that at the Apollo in 1960, they would have been killed. They would have been killed. They would, nobody would have clapped and said, oh, oh, that's funny, ha ha. You're listening to columnist, novelist, essayist, and critic Stanley Crouch. This is Zocalo. On April 19th at 7 p.m., Zocalo Public Square Lecture Series and the Los Angeles Times editorial pages present Is California Ready for its Close-Up? As California catapults its presidential primary from June to February, how will it impact the race for the White House? Times op-ed columnists Ron Brownstein, Rosa Brooks, and Jonah Goldberg join Times editorial writer Rob Green to discuss. This event at Caltech is moderated by Andres Martinez, Times editorial page editor. Zocalo is always free, but reservations are recommended. To reserve your seats and to download podcasts, go to ZocaloLA.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot org. We now return to Stanley Crouch with Blues for Black America. So, finally, we're in a very complicated situation because we have this new mayor of Massachusetts. We've got Barack Obama. We've got all of these black people who are surging forward in a variety of fields. And we're in a situation where neither, neither party to me has addressed the real issue, which is the complete overhaul of American public education. Because see, here's the thing. Now, while we're over here dropping out of school on the one hand, defending people as artists who call their audience niggas, bitches, hoes, freaks, hoochies. We're defending that. While we're we're going through through all of this, in China and in Asia, they are not playing. They have figured out what America seems to have forgotten, which is your, your greatest natural resource is your populace. And America is not doing the best that it could do to develop the human potential of its populace. And like they say, that includes you. Now, if we continue in the way we're going, 20 years from now, we're going to be in a big mess because America will not be prepared to do battle with these other countries in what's known now as the global economy. Now, I feel that what the supposed black leadership should be doing, it should be emphasizing 
the importance of bettering public education and elevating this group because this group will help to elevate the competitive edge of America and the world at large. Because we're all in this together, finally, whether we like it or not. But I haven't really seen anybody among the Republicans or the Democrats who have really dealt with that. Now, of course, everybody thinks they have a solution to this, like me. Okay, my solution would be, if you had to buy out the contracts of all of these clucks who, who are, are screwing up the public school system, we have to do two things as far as I'm concerned. One, the country has to be ready to go to battle with the teachers' union. The teachers' union's got to be got to be taken on, and there has to really be a national form of education. In other words, like for instance, when I was growing up in LA, when I went to Jefferson High School, we didn't know it, but an A in a black high school in LA was usually thought of as like maybe a C plus. If you ask somebody at UCLA or SC, what did an A mean from Jefferson High School? It's still about a C plus maybe. Now, that means that, that people were being taught on different levels. And see, that's not gonna work any longer, I don't think. Oh, it'll work for, it'll work for a number of people, but in terms of the country at large, I don't think it'll do the country any good. And so I think that that has to be straightened up I think that's the main thing that has to be addressed. Secondly, now that paternity can be proven through DNA, I think everybody who's, these guys want to have five and six kids, they need, they need to be forced to pay for these kids. And believe me, once the guys are in a situation where they actually have to pay for, pay for like what, what one guy called on 60 Minutes, he's like, I think I just got strong sperm, you know. I said, well, they, well then, once he has to pay for the strength of his sperm, I, have, I, think he'll, I think he'll figure out a way to curtail the strength of it. He'll discover things like condoms, all of those things that people who don't have sperm as strong as his tend to rely on. Another thing, is that these conditions that people have to live under at the hands of these street gangs can no longer be accepted. For instance, now, in the state of California alone, since 1980, over 10,000 black people have been murdered by street gangs, drive-bys, whatever it is. Okay, that's one state. Now, between 1877 and 1900, the end of Reconstruction and the beginning of the 20th century, the most intense period of hardcore Southern racism, through the entire South, only 3,000 black people were killed by racist violence. Now, if in one state you can have three times as many people killed by street gangs, that's not acceptable. In fact, my attitude is, is people say, well, what can we do about it? I say, pretend they're white. Because I'm going to tell you something. Nobody would have allowed, if the white guys in, in LA had started up this street gang they used to have called the Spook Hunters when I was a kid. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, they got closed down. I, but but we ain't gonna go into that. But <laughs> they got they got closed down. But anyway, if they restarted that gang, the Spook Hunters they had a jacket. Some of them had a jacket with a Roman soldier with a with a black slave on his knees with a chain around his neck, and he was holding a sword. He was going up. So they were like serious. Now, if they had started up again in 1980, and they commenced killing black people up and down the state of California. Do you think they would have been allowed to kill 10,000 of them? You think they would have killed 1,000? You think they would have killed 500? I don't think so. And let's say they all came from the, from the white lower class. Now, the white lower class, as we know, dominated the, the troops of the KKK. I have never heard anybody make an argument throughout the Civil Rights Movement. Well, you know, um, those guys that blew up those girls in Birmingham, um, you have to understand, they were, they were from, the, from the white lower class. And they, um, they were just looking to be recognized. And uh, they just wanted the feeling of power and camaraderie. And they wanted to belong to something. <laughs> Now, white people never get those kind of defenses for horrific acts. If a white guy rapes 50 women and he's captured, finally they don't say, well, you know, he only earned $8,000 a year, you can understand. But now, if a black guy rapes 50, 50 black women, somebody is going to say that he didn't have the money to get the tennis shoes, the pants, the gold chains, the gold teeth. He wasn't able to present himself in a way that would attract women to him. So he just, he had no choice but to just take it. And nobody would say that. Well, somebody would say it, unfortunately. So what I think is, in the interest of the community, we have to recognize that a civilization functions on the basis that it protects the weak, the people who are stepped on over and over. The society, if it's sufficiently civilized, moves to make sure that people who are stepped on do not keep getting stepped on. And the fact that people in various black communities across this country are afraid to go out of their houses at night, are terrified when their kids go out. If they're out half an hour, an hour later than they're supposed to be, they don't know whether they've been shot, they've been wounded, something like that. I mean, you have, a, you have enough problems being a parent without having to be bothered about that. Because believe me, trying to rear a kid, that's a big enough problem in itself. So you don't need, you, you don't need bullets added with, into the problem. So I think that if we face changing the, the educational system, stepping on, on criminals, and reiterating all of the values that, that were once in place, I think we'll be in a much better place. You're listening to novelist, essayist, and critic Stanley Crouch. This is Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A., Zocalo events are the talk of the town. I just want to let you know that I love Zocalo. I think it's a great place to have a public forum 
often when I come to one of your talks, I hear people say something where I'm thinking, oh my gosh, you just said that in public. Can you really say that? And it's going on the radio. It's fantastic. I don't... I could think of very few places in Los Angeles where you have a forum where people could do something like that. I think the event is fabulous and the food and drink is fabulous, so it's been a successful evening. This is only the second time we've come to one of their events, but we like the fact that it's free, for one thing, and that they get really good, interesting speakers who have something important to say. I like the food. (laughs) I live in Long Beach, so... I can get here by train, enjoy the cultural activities that are available in downtown Los Angeles. Sokola is excellent. It just gives you a lot of diversity about the city that you don't get in the mainstream press. And I just think there's a wealth of information to be garnered by any Sokola program that's offered. You give them some great things to think about, and then after that, you feed them. I mean, it's all about the people here. To find out more, tune in and click on ZocaloLA.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot org. In a moment, the audience asks questions of Stanley Crouch. Stay tuned to Zocalo. Welcome back to Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A. In this part of his talk, Blues for Black America, the audience poses questions for Stanley Crouch. In your presentation, where do you see the adults, the parents of these gangbangers or children, the parents and the adults of the community, Where do you see them, and what do you see them not doing or doing that is different from when I was in junior high school in Watts in South Central? A lot of these kids are the kids of single mothers, and the single mothers tend to treat the sons as though they're their husbands or they're the man of the house, and they don't actually intimidate them. See, because I believe that intimidation is number one on the part of the mother. See, because because I grew up with these guys, these big guys, and if the mother would, the mother could be like this, you know, she could be like this size, right? And she could say, "Come on, dinner time is six o'clock, boy. You better come in here." Oh, mom, I'm out there. We just playing some some football. Now he'd be big. This guy'd be six feet tall, right? Maybe 180 pounds already, he's 17. And his mother say, nah, you don't want me to come out there, do you? I don't want to have to come out there and get you. And then he would say, well, fellas, I got to go have dinner. Now, to me, that's the thing that is lacking in a lot of the parents of these kids. But also, the introduction of guns into the neighborhood removed the pecking order. So for instance, a guy in Brooklyn was telling me, he said, well, look, it used to be if some boys were on your porch or throwing some trash in front of your house, you could go to the door and say, pick that up or get off my porch or whatever it is. He said, but now, you know, these kids have these these nine millimeters, and they'll, they'll step back and they'll say, look, Pop, and they just open their coats. He said, the best thing for you to do is take your old ass back in the house. 
That's the best thing for you to do. Now, that's one of the reasons why I feel that the police, police have to create real relationships with people in the community. People have to be able to notify the police that someone is selling guns, someone has guns, without the perpetrator or the gun seller to know who called them. There are all kind of innovations of strategy that have to be brought about to bring about the protection of the community. And see, the community will work with the police if the police are actually interested in working with them. The community cannot disarm all these guys that have got all these guns. They can't do that. They can make a movie and get Jim Brown and four or five black exploitation actors, if you want to call them that, and have them shoot up all the gangs. But that, that's just too far out. The police need to do it, and they need to work in conjunction with the community. But also, the shame element left the community, too. That is, once upon a time, and not, not that long ago, a girl knew that her responsibility to herself was not to get pregnant. And if she did get pregnant, she didn't become so much of a pariah, but, it was, but she was ashamed of being 15 years old and going to have a baby. But now it's almost like, well, you know, well, what happened? I'm, I'm, I'm pregnant. Yes. What we're leaving out is the male influence. The female does not get pregnant by herself. And, oh, but and, she and, never and did. If, and if she's a single parent, where is that male in that scenario? And how do we as a community uh, address that without making it the female's problem or the female's, you know, so she's the one taking the hit. But we bring it back to the male that... Was oh, well, that's, that's, that's what I meant earlier about the DNA, which is that when you can prove that this guy is the father, he should be forced to pay child support. But the other thing is this. One young woman was telling me, she said, well, well, you know, it takes, it takes two to tango. I said, yeah, but it only takes one to hold a bag. Yes, it does take a, a man and a woman to come together to create a pregnancy, but only one of them ends up having the baby and being, you don't want to say stuck with it, but that's what I mean by holding the bag. And the fact that, see, and, and I think that that, you know, I think that civil rights organizations, for one thing, they should be pushing to make these guys be responsible for their kids. Because I'm, I'm going to tell you, nothing handles problems better than human nature. And if guys know that it can be proven that they are the father of a child and they will therefore have to support that child for 18 years, believe me, they will begin to act differently. Yeah, well, it's not that way now, but the thing is, but so the point is, it has to be, it has to be an acceptance and an imposition of human nature as, as part of the solving of problems. Like I was saying today on the radio, when I was talking earlier about these 10,000 people that were killed by these gangs, from 1877 until the middle 1960s, White guys, if they had a headache, drank too much, 
had problems with their wife, got mad on their job, et cetera. Throughout the South, they would just vent their animosity and violent acts on black guys, right? Because they didn't go to jail. But when they started prosecuting them in the 60s, there was a precipitous drop in the number of violent attacks on black guys. And we know that if a tradition that lasted for 90 years could come to a screeching halt because people started going to jail, that just says one thing that the white guy would say, yeah, I'm mad tonight. I want to be out of there. I want to. No, I think I'll go chop a tree or something. <laughs> My name is Randy Ross. I'm a co-editor of the right. book, yeah, Grills Beneath the Bear, Bob. I want to thank you for your contribution to that publication, Short Stories. A right, question for you. When we walked in today, the music that we were greeted with was Miles Davis. Right. Uh, kind of blue, I guess, right. one of the greatest selling albums. And, I'm, and I was reading your book, Considering Genius, and I was thinking about some of this, the, the pieces on Miles Davis and how it relates to part of your thesis. I think in the first chapter that you dealt with in Miles Davis, it was a very positive one. It was about the emergence of Miles Davis, how he came up, and the, and the wonderful music that he created for America and the world. And then in a later chapter, there's the piece on the sellout of Miles Davis. You know, he changed his clothing. Well, he changed his music first, but his clothing, his hairstyle, and all that other stuff. The question is, was Miles Davis, in his terms of his movement, his changes, was, he, uh, was it authentic? Was he moving into the coon cage, I guess you called it? Or was he, would he perhaps, maybe was he moving toward those rap guys or something? But where was he going? Yeah, he was going in that direction because, see, the thing is that um, I went to BET to do a show for them about a month ago. And I was actually shocked because I was surrounded by all of these young black guys while they were like, from 16 to maybe 35 or 40. But they all acted like they were 16. And I had never seen that before. Of course, I mean, you don't see Negroes be stupid. I mean, like everybody has who's been around them or any other group. You be around any group, you're going to see people who act stupid. But there's, a, but there's something really odd. There was something odd to me when I'd be looking at the guy, and he'd be like 35 years old, but he would be acting like he was 16. And so I asked this woman who was there, worked for Essence Magazine, I said, well, what, what is this? What's going on? And so she said, um, well, you know, these guys, they've focused on that area of, of life, that age bracket, because they're convinced that that's the way they have to be to become successful you know, to be liked, to become successful in the music business or something. Now, this is very strange to me, but, but again, it's part of the pollution that comes out of rap. Because if you've ever seen an interview with a rapper on BET or BH1 or MTV, that is very fascinating. The ones that I like, or there's a white guy who's like Mr. Interested, right? And there's a, a black guy who's, I don't want to say Mr. Stupidity, because that's not exactly what it is. It's close, though. And so he'll ask him questions and say, like, well, uh, 
What are you, what are you trying to do now with your uh, material? I noticed in your last recording, uh, you were talking a lot about BMWs, and before that you were talking about Cadillac. Well, well, you know, what I'm trying to do, I'm trying to find the right car. And uh, uh, so I can't even be talking about the car I used to be talking about, because I don't drive that car no more. I drive a, I, I drive an upscale car. So all of the answers are so imbecilic, right, that, for instance, when, until I saw these guys in, at BET, after I met them, I actually considered writing an apology to Spike Lee. Because until I met them, I used to think that he, that he made those guys up, you know? When I would see them in movies, they would be so dumb. I'd say, I thought, oh, man, you can't. There's nobody like that. But then when I was, I was in the studio surrounded by them in every direction, I said, Spike was right. They, they actually exist. But the thing that fascinated me most was when you, when you talk to them. See, the first thing is they didn't talk to me like they talked to each other. So that was kind of interesting to me. But I could tell many of them were not as dumb as they acted. That was a, a mask that they had put on. And it was startling to me because in my generation, everybody wanted to be an adult. You didn't want to be, uh, it, when the 60s got going, it was like young people wanted adult privileges, but they wanted to be kids. But I think that once we reiterate our tradition, I think that that could help elevate the entire society. Because I think that there is something that all supposed outsiders have to offer that we can all use. Thank you very, very much. You've been listening to columnist and critic Stanley Crouch. This is Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A., Zocalo's radio broadcast is sponsored by 89.3 KPCC. Zocalo Radio is supported by a generous grant from the James Irvine Foundation and by the California Endowment. For information on upcoming Zocalo events and to download past radio programs, visit ZocaloLA.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot org. The producer for Zocalo Radio is Peter Stencil. Douglas Gary is our engineer. I'm Marcos Fromer. Thanks for listening. Support for this public radio podcast comes from the University of Chicago Graduate School of Business with a network of 40,000 alumni worldwide on the web at chicagogsb.edu.